You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. So I I heard a story recently of a a pastor who uh, was going on a flight. He was a little bit scared of flying. He had done it before, but it really wasn't his thing. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And just so happens this, this one particular flight that he had to take a year prior, actually, um, uh, let's just say uh, it, it crashed. It had some, uh, some difficulties, and he was very aware of the story, and so he boards this plane very hesitantly, and he gets on this, this flight, and everything seems to be going smooth. It's a rather short flight. And uh, he begins his descent, uh, the approach to the, the town of where he's going to land, and they begin to experience some pretty intense turbulence. And uh, he actually later described it as uh, it felt like God was shaking the airplane like a child shakes a piggy bank, trying to get all the money out of the, the piggy bank. And so he's freaking out. I mean, he's white-knuckled. He's about to puke. He is just worried like nobody else, right? And he looks over, and he sees a, a woman, and she is passed out. I mean, she is just, just sleeping through the whole thing. That was a good snore. Y'all know what my wife experiences every night. So, uh, but I mean, she's just asleep. And in this moment, instead of, you know, kind of focusing on his own issues, he gets enraged because this girl is just passed out. I mean, she's not worried about this storm at all, and he's just fired up. For some reason, it makes him angry that she's so chill during this moment. And so they land safely. They, they get to their destination, and as they're about to deboard the plane, he can't help himself. And so he looks at the lady and goes, hey, hey, hey lady, I just want to let you know, we almost died and you about missed it, and that's one thing that you don't want to sleep through, right? You want to be awake for that, which I, you know, I got, do you? Uh, but anyway, and she looks back at him with a smile and just says, Mister, I don't know how to fly a plane. And in that moment, he, he says, I wish that we could have that kind of perspective in different areas of our life. Like, I mean, think about it. Think about all the things that you and I get worked up over. We got no idea how to solve it. We don't have control over the situation, but we will sit there white-knuckled, angry, in fear, although the reality is we're not in control of the situation. And in so many ways, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in this this book, this this portion of Zechariah chapter 7. If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this book, and and what this this is, this is a prophet who was called by God to speak to a group of people who were in captivity for, for many years, and they've been released to go back to their hometown, to go kind of rebuild their culture, and to go back and literally rebuild their houses, their temple. And God says, worship me by rebuilding the temple. And so they go back, and uh, they rebuild for about a year, and then they stop. They stop rebuilding, and so God raises up these men, Zechariah and another one in the Old Testament called Haggai, to get them back to work. And here in chapter 7, there's a a little bit of a shift in the first several chapters of this book. What we see is the eight visions that God gave Zechariah to 
tell the people of God. So these are direct messages to them. Some of them are encouraging. Some of them are kind of kick you in the pants, get, get to work kind of moments. But right here in chapter 7, God's going to, to shift. And what he's going to show the people, Lord willing, and show you and I this morning, is that really the best way for us to live our life is to realize that we don't fly the plane, that God does. And when we can let go and let God, so to speak, it's a lot better for us. So, Zechariah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rijimim Melech, say that five times fast, and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have for so many years? So, as I said, when Zechariah was called, he's given these eight visions in one night. And, and where we are in this moment is this is actually two years after he's been given these visions. So this is two years later. He's, he's given the message to the people of God. And in some sense, they've, they've gone back to work. And in some senses, they, they really haven't gone back to work. And so what you see is that people are sent to come and approach, uh, really, Joshua, the high priest. Zachariah is in the mix and some others to say, hey, so uh, we've been fasting, we've been kind of praying, we've been seeking the Lord in these ways over, over different areas and different time. Should we continue to do that? And, and what's interesting to note in this point is that the people of God were only commanded one time in the Old Testament to fast. Only one time. But what they had been doing is they've been fasting about five different times throughout the year. The one time that they were supposed to do this was during Yom Kippur. It was Le Leviticus 23 outlines it as the Day of Atonement. And so they were given this moment by God where God says, Hey, this is when you are to fast. This is when you are to consecrate yourself and, and, to, and to worship me in a special way. But what the people of God began to do is during their 70 years of captivity in Babylonia, they created four other times that they would kind of prepare their hearts for God. And I think on the outset, you and I hear that, and we go, that's, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I, I think if we were to look deeper, we might see some, some brokenness in this situation. Think about where we are in our current day. This is the Lent season, for those of you who didn't know that. So Lent is a season that was created by the institution of the church, so to speak. We don't see it in Scripture anywhere. Uh, we certainly see examples of it in Scripture. Uh, but we don't see this season, this 40-ish day, preparing for the resurrection of Christ as a set-apart time for us to fast or prepare our hearts. The church kind of created it. And in so many ways, in a good way, to prepare our hearts to celebrate for Easter. But what happens when the ritual, the, the preparation, becomes more than the person that we're going to do all this for? Like, what happens when the, the, the process of worship becomes more of an idol than worship? Churches have to be very careful with this in our day in, day out. Hunter and I talk about this on a weekly basis, it seems like. Because as much as we want to have good Worship, and when I say that, most of you here like music, right? We want to have a, a good band and cool lights and all this other thing. We don't want our worship to be directed towards 
this. Because this is going to fade away. This, you know, the Lord says the moths will eat it. It's not going to be here. Like, so what we do is we create environments, Lord willing, that draw you closer into the worship of God. So we use these tools to worship God. We don't worship an amazing voice or a really cool guitar solo. or We don't even worship a great sermon. We hear the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. And that is what draws us into the worship of God. But what happens when the trellis, so to speak, that the vine grows up, becomes more important than the vine itself? This is what God's going to point out to the people. Is that they were looking to control who God was in a sense. They were looking to control the blessings of God. They were saying, hey, hey, look, so during this captivity, if, if we set apart some times during the year, although God didn't necessarily call us to, but it probably started with great intentions. If we set ourselves apart, if we fast, if we pray, if we seek after God, then God will bless us. And in many ways, what you're seeing in that is the prosperity gospel that is preached today. That if I do these things, man, God's going to bless me. But in no way is that the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel that we see throughout the Old Testament. That is not in faith serving God. That is, in hopes for reward, I'm going to do this. Just like when you were a child, or maybe your children do now, hey, if I do something for mom or dad, mom and dad will give me something back. And in some ways, that's not a bad thing to teach our children when they're young so that they understand kind of reward-based you know, works to a degree. But when it comes to our salvation, this is not the message that God was sending us. God was not sending, look, if you go through the process, you're going to get all of the benefits of me. No, God says, I want your heart. And then the process will come. And this is what they're doing. They're trying to manipulate God. So we continue on in verse 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. So they, they, they send this message. Are we supposed to keep doing this? And then God replies, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not, were, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosper, uh, prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhibited? May I ask you this? How many times do you perform for God? I mean, really, like, introspectively, look in your life and go, how many times do you do something Go to church, give, perform an action, try to do the right thing to win God's approval. Do you fast going, God, if you'll just shine some light on my situation, I'll continue to do X. Do you read your Bible saying, God, just speak to me because I really need this right now. So God, I'm going to do this in exchange for your voice. This is, in many ways, what the people were doing. They were trying to do this performance, work-based thing. Where it's like, hey God, if I do these things and lean into this, 
you're going to give me this, right? And what they forgot that is that everything that we do is meant for the glory of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the purpose of life. That everything goes back to the glory of God. But truth be told, in some ways, to some people, our Christian faith has become nothing more than traditionalism. To some people, in some ways, the Christian faith has become nothing more than traditionalism. And what I mean by that is this is where the heart does not do things from the heart, but it does something because it's just what we do. It's just a part of life. This is where the heart doesn't look to please God just for His pleasure. But this is where the heart looks at God and says, I'm going to please you just so I can get what I want. And that's not what Scripture points to. And let me be, let me be clear. God is not longing for you to have uh, good intentions and good, atten- good intentions alone, meaning uh, we're going to be talking about action and intention this morning and, and, and letting God kind of fly the plane. But I think sometimes when we start getting on this topic of having the right heart and having good intentions, we somehow can subtract what that means about our actions. And, and, and we can subtract the idea that just because someone has good actions doesn't mean they have good intentions. That's true. But it, just because they have good intention doesn't ever mean that that draws them into action either. And so what God is going to look at the people and you and I is, is say is that intentions are important, but intentions without actions mean nothing. And in our faith, God has given us a new spirit, Christian. Christ follower in the room this morning. He has given you a new spirit to, to, to do so many things. He calls you a more, more than a conqueror in this world. Like you can do great things in the name of Jesus. And he doesn't do that just to give you something on the inside that stays there. He gives you a new spirit so that that can kind of manifest itself in your life in various ways. Like you were put here to change the world. That's why you're here. You weren't just here to all of a sudden feel clean on the inside, but God has called you and given you a new spirit on the inside so that will flow through your actions. And so he's given you this new spirit to form your intentions, to form your heart, to then make action, to take steps in your life. God desires for you and I to surrender the plane to him. Like he flies it, he He owns everything. He controls it. He knows how to manipulate and maneuver this world where you and I do not. We are to give Him the keys, so to speak, to our life. But He doesn't just say, hey, give me the keys and sit in the back of the plane and chill. He says, give me the keys and ride shotgun. Like ride co-pilot with me. Like be a part of this. I didn't make you new to just sit and watch. I didn't make you new to just have, oh, good feelings. You know, I really want to change the world, but I'm going to do nothing. That's not what he did. 
And in so many ways, what the people of God are doing in this moment is, man, we've gone through all the right rituals, God. We've done all of the right things. And so are we supposed to keep doing this? Because I don't know if it's working. And God looks back and says, look, all the things in your life you're doing for the wrong reasons anyway. Like, I want your heart. Because when I get your heart, your actions will flow from that. There's a scripture that talks about that, in case you didn't know. Where your heart is, you will be also. So it's not about the pomp and the circumstance of the performance and the rituals and, and all the things that, that we sometimes make in traditional values of church. It, it's about following Jesus. And so he's going to talk to them in the next couple of verses about, hey, so you want to you know, maybe cease fasting. You want to know if you're supposed to keep doing it. Well, have you really been doing it for the right reason? And then he's going to say, because you haven't been doing it for the right reason, here's what's coming. Verse 8, he says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention. So this is God telling me, hey, here's what it means to follow after me. Here's what it means to not just be in traditional, like, you know, cultural Christianity. Here's what it means to follow after God. Like, love mercy. Show kindness. Don't oppress those around you, but follow after me. And what it says, they refused to pay attention. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets, through the former people who had proclaimed the truths of God. And then they said, no, 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 we're not going to hear all of that. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. He says, as I called and they would not hear, so they called. And I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. When we turn our backs on God, there might be a time where God will turn His back on you. And that's not like the contemporary, fun little message that we like to hear. I was talking to our group on Thursday nights, and I, and I made a statement that said, you know, sometimes people from pastors in the pulpit, that we, we, we want to just share the good news of Jesus so frequently that sometimes we get lost in sharing the hard truths of what it means to follow God. And what the hard truths of following God is, is you have to die to yourself and become a follower of Him. So you can't keep holding on to all the things that you want and the, the things of this world while simultaneously holding on to Jesus. Jesus says, let it go and follow me. And when you don't do that, when you try to hold on to the things of this world, when, when you try to just go through the motions, there might come a time where God will say, okay, have it. There it is. You wanted it so badly. Here it is. 
And in our 21st century modern church where God is a God of love, we have a hard time grappling that truth. That this God of love is also a God of pure judgment. And because of his righteous justice, his wrath is right there and he's ready to give you what you want. He says in James 1.27, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Jesus said we should love the least of, the, of these. Love the least of these. And here these Old Testament Jews in this moment, they're coming to God saying, hey, we're doing all these right things, all these rituals, and he looks back at them and says, you're doing the rituals with poor intentions. Where are the actions where you love people? Where are the actions where you're lifting up your neighbor? Where are the actions where you are following through with good intentions and good actions? Do you believe that your intentions matter? Let me, let me be clear. Your intentions do matter. But without action, your intentions don't mean anything. I heard it once from a, a good old southern pastor. Intentions are, are the paved road to hell. The best intentions are the pavers on the road to hell. And I was telling somebody this morning, I said, you know, delivering truths like this are not the fun pastoral moments for us. You know, you see visitors walk in, and you're going, man, I'm about to bring the hammer here in just a minute. And you're going, well, great first time visit. Thank you. Go watch us online. Maybe it won't be so bad the second time, right? But the reality is, I, I, I want to say this. You can't walk with the Lord in His love and in His mercy and His grace if you don't understand and rectify His wrath and justice. Because you don't know who he is. If all you see is a God of flowers and love, you haven't seen a God that sent his son to die for the unjust. Because that's what we are. You can't understand how great God is if you don't understand the sacrifice that he paid for you. And you can't understand the sacrifice that he paid for you until you understand how bad and how broken and how dead we are because of sin. So do your intentions matter? Yes. But without action, good intentions don't mean much. So, God looks at them and says, hey, your hearts are broken. Your intentions are broken. You want these things, but yet you're not doing them with the right intentions. It's not bad to fast. It's not bad to set up this trellis of, of worship to me. But you're doing them from a place of selfishness and a place where you are lifted up above me. And I think the most important aspect of this is he's talking to a nation here. He's not just saying, hey, you sitting right there, you're the one who did it and the rest of you are solid. He's saying, you as a nation have fallen short. And that's something that we need to heed today. 
is something that you and I need to recognize, even if you are going, I, I do the right things. In so many ways, we as a nation are broken. And if you've heard me preach for any time, you know that I don't enjoy doing what I'm about to do. I don't like just using this place as a political argument. But there are times when what we do in this world needs to be spoken about from the Word of God. So I'm going to read just a portion of a, a letter that came out from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission recently. Because I think it's important that the people of God know what's going on in our world today. It says this. Last month, the U.S. House of Representatives voted in favor of a controversial bill. The vote was 224 to 206 with all Democrats and three Republicans voting in favor of the legislation. On Wednesday, that's this past Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer used a Senate rule called 14 that allows a bill to bypass a Senate committee and be placed directly on the Senate calendar for business. This means that even though the Judiciary Committee held a hearing today, Leader Schumer could bring this bill to the floor at any point. The bill is called the Equality Act. This bill prohibits discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, and gender, gender identity in areas including public accommodations and facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. Specifically, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination or segregation. The bill expands the definition of public accommodations to include places or establishments that provide ex exhibitions, recreation, exercise, amusement, gatherings, or displays, uh, goods, services, or programs, and transportation services. The bill allows the Department of Justice to intervene in equal protection actions in federal court on account of sexual orientation or gender identity. The bill prohibits an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. So what does this bill mean for religious liberty? This is, this is kind of the nuts and bolts. Well, the ERLC, that's the Ethics Religious Liberty Commission, says this. They believe that this bill represents the most significant threat to religious liberty ever considered in the United States Congress. Ever considered in the United States Congress. This bill would substantially undermine religious liberty protections in the United States. America has long been a place where people with different views and beliefs have lived at peace alongside of each other. Though America has not perfectly lived up to this ideal of a shared nation, it was central to our founding as persecuted religious minorities sought safe harbor in this land. Though cleverly named, the Equality Act is out of step with that American ideal. Equality cannot be achieved while eliminating other basic fundamental freedoms. The Equality Act would force faith-based child welfare organizations to abandon their deeply religious held beliefs or be shut down by the state. As the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission noted in the written testimony to the Judiciary Committee, because they wrote several letters, the Equality Act would be the most pro-abortion bill ever passed. 
by the Congress. And you can go and do all sorts of research on this bill that, quite frankly, looks as if it is going to pass very soon. We as the church can no longer live with just good intentions. We must vote, speak, pray, and take necessary peaceful actions to see the commands and the will of God be put into action. Our children are being raised in a very different world than you and I have been raised in. And this is no longer a time for us to just say somebody else will handle it. To go further, God will not let a nation sin in this way without punishment. And that doesn't mean that the innocent will skate free. The innocent are being murdered every day. And it will come in our face. And you and I can stand for the things of God. But here's the great news. We don't have to do it alone. We're not fighting a battle that can't be won by our own might. Matter of fact, Zechariah says earlier, it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but it's by the Spirit of God. In the next chapter, it's going to be long, and I'm going to read the whole thing, because you need to hear how God is going to rescue His people from this tyranny, from this, this place of what seems unjust because we have made bad decisions. And I say we because we are a part of this nation. Whether you've voted the right way or you've made the right choices, you are a part of this nation. And so where it goes in so many ways, you go. God doesn't differentiate when he talks about the people of God and the nations in the Old Testament and say, well, this one person was good outside of just a couple of times. And if you look at those couple of times, the nation didn't end up so well. But he's going to give us a good news. He's going to give us the best news. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. I am jealous for my people with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. This is God telling His people that they will be His again. No longer will they just run and will they be a, a part from him, but even though the temple may not look like it needs to be, even though they may be wrestling with what to do, he will bring them back into the fold and will say, You are my child, you are my son and daughter. I will fight for you. Even in the midst of their sin and their shortcomings, God says, I will come. He says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem because it's safe. Each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, 
I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Righteousness, Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built, that the people of God might be built up. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe from him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor, but now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. You won't just get by, you will be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. You shall speak the truth to one another. One another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Let me pause there. So what God is saying, what you made, I'm going to turn into something good. What you made to be faulty and broken, I'm going to turn it into goodness for me and for you. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In the first eight chapters... Of Zechariah, he gives visions and then he says, Look, you've been doing things with a corrupt heart and bad intentions. Regardless, I'm gonna fix it. I am going to make it right. Even though you are a broken nation and you are rebelling against me, I am going to make it right. Where they believed that their work was gonna get it done, God said, No, it is not your work, but by my work. Where they believed, where they were going to follow their precepts after the Lord, where they were going to use these you know, trellises that they built up to build the vine of God, God says, no, I'm going to tear it down, but I'm going to build a new one, and I'm going to strip you of those filthy rags, and I'm going to clothe you in righteousness. And here, they believed that they could go to God and say, hey, look, we're doing all these things. Can you 
Give us some reward. And God says, no. I'm going to do one better. I'm going to change the whole game. Where you were doing these things with a broken heart and poor intentions, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to go. And I'm going to make your desires pure. I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you good intentions. And because of that, your actions will back it up. This is the story of the Gospel. God comes into the middle of our broken situations with all of our selfishness, with all of the stuff that we say, well, we've been doing really good, God. And He says, well, you really haven't. But even though you think you have, I'm going to send my son to die for you. And when you receive him, you will receive the spirit of the living God and I will make you a new creation. No longer will you perform the duties that you used to in brokenness, but now in a new spirit and a new heart will you function in the spirit of God in this world. And so I look at you, church, I look at each and every one of us and I go, are you seeking God out of a pure heart? Or are you just trying to go through the motions? When you give to his church, are you doing it to get a tax credit? Are you doing it just so that somebody will see and give you a little pat on the back? Or are you saying, God, you have called us to support your church and here it is. Here's the first fruits of my house. When you serve, are you here because you believe in the vision that God has given us as a church to reach the nations? Or are you doing it just to get plugged in somewhere? Just to, you know, pour your bucket out in some way? It's a tough passage. It's, it's a tough truth to hear. But I, I think if you were to truly wrestle with it, if you were to truly wrestle with this idea you would find that so often you try to get God out of the plane and you try to sit in the captain's chair and you try to fly a plane that you have no clue how it works. When God is just telling you, hey, move out of the seat. You don't know how to fly the plane. I do. You don't have to keep doing things to try to earn my grace, that I earn my mercy, my love. I've already done it. I've given you my son. And so as we walk into our weeks today, some of us are on spring break and others of us are going back to work while others are on spring break. That's fun. Know this, that the battle has already been won by Jesus. And so what he's calling you to do is give him the keys to the plane and say, I'm going to ride co-pilot with Jesus. Now that's a good t-shirt, right? I'm just going to ride with my homie Jesus. Because you don't know how to fly a plane. You don't know how to do it. And you can think you do and over and over again, I promise you, what you're going to find out is you're going to crash the plane. And I just hope and pray 
that you give him the keys before it's too late. You can give him the keys every day. Metaphorically speaking, we can wake up and we can say, I'm going to serve you this day, Jesus. I'm going to give you all that I have this day. So, we're going to sing a song, and I want you to just kind of reflect. The words of this song are are great theological truths that just proclaim who God is. And I would just ask you as we sing this song to search your heart and say, is this who Jesus is to me? Or am I too busy trying to perform actions to ignore that He is my living hope?